Hello. We're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. He's gone up into this place where the record of Jewish tradition, and you can kind of see it in the Old Testament, is that God has confined some of the most wicked, evil spirits in that territory. And Christ has walked straight into their, their centre of their domain. The forces of evil have been referred to in many different literary contexts as the dark side. Darkness is not something we relish. It's a place where we might consider bad, evil or harmful things to happen. Darkness is often a metaphor for a place without comfort where despair reigns. Having just celebrated Easter when the forces of darkness literally took the life of Jesus, we sit down to explore what happened in the spiritual realm. Don't be spooked, this will astound and invigorate you. Tonight, let's join Dr. Corbett for the beginning of the Darkness series, The Doom of Darkness. Right, we're, we're approaching Holy Week, which is the week in which Jesus Christ made his way into Jerusalem. And we will follow that story uh, through the week and then come to Good Friday and we will commemorate Good Friday appropriately. And I want to talk about the lead up to that Holy Week, which we often don't sort of look at too closely. And as you would have heard in the news, this is uh, Tony and I sort of partnering with a little series called the Darkness Series, because we want to show you that Easter is not just, certainly not just about Easter eggs, it's certainly not just about Jesus dying and that's that. It, it actually changes the entire cosmic universe it changes something something fundamentally changed as a result of what happened leading up to the cross the cross the resurrection the ascension and the day of pentecost all of those things are linked intrinsically linked so this is the first installment of that and this is the doom of darkness and i will be talking about the picture in the background which caught my eye a few months ago in an antiquarian book so I'll tell you more about that so I want us to appreciate that nothing in the New Testament is random in fact nothing in the Bible is random especially anything that Jesus did and so this this has a little subtitle on it and and it's this it's it's when Christ marched into the enemy's domain of darkness and then baited his demonic enemies. And over this darkness series, we're going to see, I hope, Easter in a, in a new light. It's, a, it's a, a light in which we will see Christ is taking on the cosmic forces of darkness that perpetrate so much evil in this world. And it's, I've got to tell you, it's really, really difficult for me to see what's happening in eastern ukraine as anything other than being motivated by immaterial spiritual forces that are creating unbelievable evil and havoc but more about that later so for us to understand this i want to repeat that there is absolutely nothing random in the bible it's it's all there for a reason now, i know that this is going to be something that will cause pe those people who've waded their way through the genealogies of the old testament and thought, why do I need to know any of this? And I hope that you'll see some of those, some of those details, which I'm going to touch on in a moment, are intrinsically linked to Easter, the first Easter, the first time Christ went to the cross, even though they took place around 1,500 years before Christ 
uh, was incarnated. So there's nothing random in the Bible and there's especially nothing random about what Jesus did or said. It was all very calculated, all very, very deliberate. Like, for example, of all the places on planet Earth, why was he born in Israel? Why was he in Israel? Of all the places in Israel that he could have lived, why did he live where he lived? Because he didn't live where he was born, as I guess often that's the story for most of us. But in this instance, why did Jesus live where he lived? So we read in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. There's a couple of really intriguing things about this. Firstly, we cannot find a verse in the Old Testament that says that. And you notice it doesn't actually say what was written by the prophets. It's what was spoken. So here's the first thing I just want you to notice. There was a lot of revelation that God gave the Hebrews, particularly the prophets. They were like the, they were the thus says the Lord guys. And these guys heard from God and not everything they heard was written down. It was shared. The word is orally. There's, there's one oral tradition that was later, around about 250 BC, was actually written down. Some scribes got together and said, look, we need to write this down. And it was a tradition that dated back thousands of years, a revelation given to one of the very first prophets who's not designated specifically as a prophet, but clearly was a prophet, and his name was Enoch. And Enoch is an amazing guy. There's only about two or three verses in the Old Testament speaking of this guy. But what's interesting is that we, we see in Jewish tradition that they have volumes of, almost, in fact, two volumes of things that he claims God revealed to him. And that was passed down through the generations. Jesus quotes it in Matthew chapter 24. The epistle to the Hebrews quotes a different part of it. Second Peter quotes it, book of First Enoch. And Jude not only quotes it, he tells us he's quoting it. So these are the traditions that informed the background to the time that Jesus and the apostles walked. So notice this, what was spoken by the prophets. Now, curiously, the word Nazarene in the, in the Hebrew sounds very similar to Nazur, which means branch. And Isaiah said that the Messiah would be the branch. So did Jeremiah. And so there's this, this place on words. All right, for us to understand some of these things, like I haven't even come to, why did he, why Nazareth? If I gave you a blank map of Israel, could anyone quickly point to Nazareth? Luke could. All right. I think I need... Have we got a a laser pointer, Tony, in the AV room? I don't want to blast Luke. I want to to be able to... Can I have a laser pointer, please? Because I've had a few complaints about the inaccuracy of of my air maps. (laughs) So now now I'm going to use a laser pointer to point on my air map where I'm referring to, just to be more specific. The top button. All right. Thank you. All right. So in order for us to understand some of these seemingly random, and they're they're not even that we think they're random, it's that we just don't think they're relevant at all. In order for us to understand it, I need to give you a geography and history lesson. And everyone said, awesome. (laughs) Geography and history, my two favorite. All right. Now, what Luke would have done is he would have pointed out that that's where Nazareth was. 
Yeah, pretty much. That's, that, that's what Luke would have done right there. That's Nazareth. This, this region that's sort of uh, a light gr lime green is known as Galilee. It's a, like a, a province, Galilee. Uh, now, here's the thing. Jesus, later on, will choose to live there, Capernaum, which Capernaum means the town of Nahum, Nahum the prophet. And we have Magdala, which is where Mary Magdalene was from, Mary of Magdala, Mary of Magdalene. And in fact, most of the time that Christ ministered happened in this region. In fact, you will see first miracle happening in Cana. He raised the widow's son at Nain. Um, and and uh, Capernaum, he probably gave the, what we would call the Sermon on the Mount. So it all happened almost, in, almost entirely around this region, which is odd, isn't it? But you don't realise that until you actually see it on a map. There, there it is. Now, of course, he went down to Jerusalem, which is down there. I hope you can see that is the pulpit in the way, but you can, there's Jerusalem there. And so, but you would think that, you know, Jerusalem was kind of the centre of Christ's activity. No, actually, it, it wasn't. And I want, to, I want to point out in giving you these history and geography lessons, why it's actually important to understand where Jesus ministered. And, and to do that, I, I mentioned earlier in the service that Christ was re, almost kind of reenacting God's call of Israel. In fact, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, I think it is, actually tells us, and the, and the New Testament writers quote it, out of Egypt I called my son. And the nation of Israel was known as the Son of God. And Jesus, of course, is the ultimate Son of God. And it's where the calling of God is ministered through. And so Israel was meant to minister God's light to the world. He was meant to offer salvation and forgiveness and redemption and hope to the world. And they ended up thinking it was all about them. And, and they were sorely mistaken. And as a result, they got into all kinds of self-worship, which is called idolatry. So it's, it's important to understand when Israel moved into land. So let me go back in the Old Testament now. So we're going back uh, about 1500 years BC. So this is, just to give you a bit of an idea, uh, running, sort of, here's running down here. You see Jordan River runs down there. So John was baptizing, you know, somewhere in this, somewhere in this region uh, down here, along there. That's the Jordan River. When, uh, when Joshua brought, the, brought the, the people, so they, they'd already come out of Egypt, which is over here, and they've, they've come along down this way, um, uh, across uh, Red Sea, which is down here. They, they've come across, they've come around, and they're, they're in here in this wilderness. You can see it's coloured as a kind of a, a wilderness colour, and that, that's where they were. And so they spent the best part of 40 years in that region, and then it was time for Joshua to bring them in. Right? So, so th this is where they came in. So if you've got the top, the, the up, uppermost uh, border of Israel biblically is about there. Damascus is in Syria. Paul's on the road there, you might recall. And so all of this region was given, all of this down to there, was given to biblical Israel. Just there, all that. All right, so when he came in, uh, when Joshua led the, the people of Israel in, 
he went to this place here. Now, this is Jericho. Hopefully you can see that's about smack in the middle of Israel. So there's the top just up there. I want you, I'll be referring to Mount Hermon in a moment. Very, very, very important. Bashan, super important. I'll be talking about that in a moment. And it goes down to about the territory just on the border of Egypt where the Amalekites were. The Amalekites greeted Israel just as they came out of Egypt. So, but he, he went into Jericho right in the middle. That was their first battle when they came into Jericho. From there, oh, oops, wrong button. From there, they go back over here, up around here, into Bashan, and up into this territory here. Now, if you're, if you're running the military campaign, that is a really odd military strategy. So why did it happen? And again, this is one of those things that might seem random, but it's not. And here's why. I need to give you a little bit of background. In Genesis chapter 6, it describes the sons of God. Another designation of this term, sons of God, was given to a special class of angels, heavenly beings. They were called the watcher angels. And First Enoch actually talks about this. And it describes these watcher angels being given by God the ability to take on human form. And again, that shouldn't surprise any of us if we've read Genesis chapter 18, we see that three angels came to Abraham, or in fact it was almost certainly Yahweh and two angels. And there we have Abraham giving them a meal. They ate the meal. They digested the meal. So these are heavenly beings that, that have, are able to take on the form of, of earthly bodies. So these creatures in Genesis chapter 6 sired children with women. And the result was called the, anyone know the word starts with N? Nephilim, the giants. They were extraordinarily large. They're later described as having six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. And they, they according to the first Enoch, taught people evil and the ways of murder. Which, you know, if we had time, we'd, we'd unpack that and go, well, no wonder God had to destroy the world with a flood because these Nephilim creatures were killing people at a rapid rate. All right, just worth thinking about. First Enoch tells us that God then said, this, you have rebelled, this is not right, you are not supposed to do this. And this is, I don't understand this, but I can see in the Old Testament that there are certain places where God chose to manifest, to reveal himself. One's called Bethel. We read in, what is it? Genesis 28, when Jacob dreamed a dream and he saw angels ascending and descending from the presence of God. And he called that place Bethel. And God took those wicked heavenly creatures and he confined them to this area, Bashan and particularly Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon became known among the Jewish Israeli community, Hebrew community, as a place of incredible wickedness. And later on, as, as you read through the Old Testament, you read of how people would do incredible wickedness and evil by sacrificing their children on altars to Baal. And Baal was the name of one of these fallen heavenly creatures, one of the watcher angels, and so on. And so that place up there, Baal, uh, Mount, Mount Hermon, is, is incredibly wicked. Interestingly, Bashan, Bashan in its Here's the big word for today, etymology. In other words, where does that word come from? It comes from the word serpent. 
It is the territory of the serpent. Now, we who are biblically informed go, oh, that sounds like Genesis 3, and it's supposed to, because that's where God had confined whom we call the devil and his forces to that area there. That's where they were to be. And so Bashan, here's a reference book that I was using this morning, and and you'll, you'll notice here that it, desc- it describes Bashan in really interesting ways. All these, uh, whoops, where are we? All these terms, where are we? there we go. Ashtaroth, Edrei. So Edrei is where Joshua did battle. In a moment, we'll have a look at that, Bashan. They theologically loaded terms. It comes originally from the Ugaritic, which means Syrian, Damascus, Syria. Syria. Uh, the Ugaritic language, the location. Oh, Tony, I think our laser just died. Oh, well. I'll just use my air map. Um, not sp- uh, anyway, and, and it goes on. And actually, here we... I'll get oh, a little bit of juice left. There it is. It means serpent. The region of Bashan was the place of the serpent. The place of the devil. So Bashan means serpent. The place of the serpent. And it was considered to be the dwelling place of the gods. Small g, not the big g. Small g. In other words creatures that demanded worship that's what a god is and it was the place we read in the old testament as i mentioned where they would go and they would offer up their children to false gods and all the rest of it and do some pretty wicked stuff on the high places mount hermon is nine thousand feet tall it's the highest mountain in israel it marks the northern border And so this is really important to understand. So now, if you've got a Bible, take notes. You might want to note this. Deuteronomy chapter 3. We're just going to have a look at this. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan. Right? So they've just conquered Jericho. Now they're off to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us. He... Uh, and all his people to battle at Edrei. So I mentioned Edrei on the map. If we went back to that map, you would see uh, where Edrei is over, uh, up, uh, up over around, around in here. Oh, there it is down there. there. There we go, Edrei. So there's the battle there and the territory of Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, there is something weird about Og. There is something very, very weird about him. And it goes on, when God called Joshua to take the people of Israel up into this territory, God said this to them. Now, if you remember when the 12 spies of Israel went into the promised land to spy it out, 10 of them came back and they said, no way are we going in there. The land is full of, what's the next word? Giants. And they weren't kidding. It actually was full of giants. Nephilim were giants. They're extraordinary tall and large. And giants, Og, is known as the son of one of these fallen angels. They are called Rephaim, which is just a different branch of the family tree to Nephilim. And so this is what God says. So now you've got this army of giants. And God is saying to Joshua, let's have a look, verse 2. But the Lord said to me, do not fear him. For I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sion, king of the Amorites, just a bit further south, who lived in Heshbon. 
And then, in case you're going, how do you know Og was a giant? Where are you getting this from? Well, I'm glad you asked. We go down to verse 11 and it says this. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits in length. What's a cubit? It's about from there to there. 500. That's exactly 500, I'd say. That's a cubit. Nine cubits, can I just point out, is very tall. That's how big his bed was. And it was four cubits wide, it goes on and says, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. So... These guys, these evil, wicked beings were confined to Mount Hermon. And the psalmists talk about this, Psalm 27, um, and it's called Sirion. Um, and, and other terms are used. We read, we see in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 3, where we're given the, the different names. It says in uh, verse 8, uh, Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Sirion, while the Amorites call it Senur. And both of those words are used in the Psalms to describe the place of incredible evil and wickedness. Because that's where God had confined these evil beings. And in Second Peter, it refers to, to them being kept, some of them, some, not all, some, being so wicked, so powerful, that God actually kept them in chains. And he called Mount Hermon Tartarus. So, let me come back to my background picture just for a moment, and hopefully you can see the connection here. This picture that I've been using in the background, which you'll see a little bit more clearly in a moment, was taken over 100 years ago. And let me just point out, this is the Sea of Galilee, taken somewhere between 1910 and 1920. And the caption of, of this picture said... From, this is Galilee, and I showed you where Jesus lived. He lived nearly all his 30 years in and around the region of Galilee. The picture said in the book, it said, in the background is Mount Hermon. I just want you to realise, Jesus chose to live in a place where every day he woke up and went out of his house, he would look at that place, confined in that place are some of the most wicked, evil beings who had done some of those vile, vile, horrible things to mankind and they were still active. They were still doing stuff and that's where they were. So, Jesus spent most of his time in and around Galilee, as I mentioned. But then, two weeks or so before he goes into Jerusalem for his final week, he takes his disciples. He says, come with me. And if we had my air map, I would show you we've got Jerusalem down here, we've got Samaria here, we've got Galilee here, we've got, got Mount Hermon here. Oops, I nearly fell off look, reaching for the map. And then just below Mount Hermon, we've got a place called Caesarea Philippi, just there. And Jesus says to his disciples, come with me. And they go all the way, all the way, all the way to Caesarea Philippi. This is two weeks before he was due to be crucified. It's an entire, like Galilee was full of Gentiles. It's known as um, the Galilee of the Gentiles. It was full of Gentiles. In fact, if you lived in Galilee, you end up having a really weird accent. And so when Peter was, was there in the courtyard as Jesus was being falsely accused and interrogated, 
that, you remember that girl, the young girl says, you're from Galilee, I can tell from your accent. And he says, well, bless your heart, I am not, you crazy woman. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> what accent? I'm trying to make the point that some accents are more easily recognized. And if you came from Galilee, you had an accent. But when Jesus went, and this is now we're picking it up, coming up the home stretch now. This is taken out of Mark chapter 8, verse 27. See this? Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? This was a strategic question. And notice this, and they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets is who you must be. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This was like a message from his father through all people, Peter, where Jesus is Caesarea Philippi, the furthest most, and it's the furthest borderline region of Israel. It, it's, it's a land of, of Gentiles everywhere. In fact, you read in the Gospels that Jesus had, had dinner that night and a Syrophoenician woman came and interrupted the dinner and said this, please heal my daughter. She is demonized. That's the Greek word. She's demonized. And that activity was highly demonized territory. There was lots of demonic activity up in that region. And so the, so the first night Jesus is there, he's casting out a demon with a word you might recall. Notice this, he's with his Jewish disciples. Here's a Gentile woman. And after he does that, you remember the exchange? It's not fit to give the bread to the dogs. Remember the exchange? It's, gee, wow. And then she says, but even dogs get the crumbs off the table. And then Jesus says of this woman, turning to his disciples, he's been ministering nearly three years and three months and they haven't had a chance to preach yet. And he says, I have never seen such great faith in all of Israel. And who did he say it to? A Gentile, not just a Gentile, a woman. You can imagine the shock of his disciples. So after six days... After Peter said this, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, if you go to Israel and you do a, a sort of the tourist thing and you go around Galilee, which is, you know, pretty safe around there. It's when you get sort of down a bit, a bit further south, that it gets a bit hairy, but up around there, pretty safe. And the tourist guide will take you to Mount Tabor, which really is kind of like what we in Tasmania call a mountain. Were you trying to make the sound? <laughs> because what we call mountains, we had someone from Switzerland come and visit us. And we said, have you seen our mountains? <laughs> and they looked out and said, um, there's Mount Barrow, there's Mount, there's Mount Ben Lomond. And they're going, well, I can only see those hills. Where's, where's your mountains? And that's the point. Tabor is hardly a mountain. And, and tourist guides who probably don't want to drive all the way up to Mount Hermon will tell you, and this is where Jesus was transfigured. Oh, I don't think so. Because it says he took 
them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. Remember, he was in Caesarea Philippi and Caesarea Philippi is right at the foot of Mount Hermon and his clothes became radiant, intensely white so no one on earth could bleach them and, they were appear- and there appeared to them Elijah and Moses and they were talking with him. So some people say, I'm Elijah. Let me introduce you to Elijah. I ain't him. He ain't I. Some say, I'm, a Mo- I'm Moses. I'm not Moses. Let me introduce you to Moses. You see, see what's going on? So that's a part of what's going on here. Secondly, he's gone up into this place where the record of Jewish tradition, and you can kind of see it in the Old Testament, is that God has confined some of the most wicked, evil spirits in that territory. And Christ has walked straight into their, their center of their domain. Flip. I, I, I kind of love and don't like the story Braveheart. I like it that it's about an Australian. <laughs> That's about all. Mel Gibson. And I like that scene where he's, he's won the battle of um, whatever it is against the British. And then his, his fellow soldiers say, where, where are you going now? He says, now he's going to ride into the, the mansion of where the Scottish lords who didn't come and help him are and have being bribed by the British, right? Remember the scene? And, and he says to his friend as he mounts his horse, he says, I'm going to pick a feet. <laughs> and he rides with his horse into their house while they're having their council meeting or whatever they're having. And he, he, te- he just tears shreds off them. How dare, you know, that thing. And here's Jesus. I kind of get this thing. He's going right into the enemy's territory right into the very place of utter darkness where some of the most vile sin happened. Let me show you an artist's impression of what this place would have looked like before they got up higher. There's the temple to Augustus or because Augustus, Caesar Augustus was believed to be the child of Zeus, the god Zeus. There's, it's the sanctuary of Pan. Pan was a goat god. The picture given in Leviticus 16 of Satan. This is a wicked, evil place. So when Jesus went up into the enemy's supposed territory, he was declaring his lordship. When he was transfigured, it really wasn't for the benefit of Peter or John. It was for those unseen, evil, wicked principalities and powers that were going, what does he think he's doing coming into our lounge room? And his glory was manifested. And can I tell you, when you get that, that he has baited the enemy, he has thrown the gauntlet down. You say this is your territory, I say it's mine. It is not yours, it is mine. I am Lord and I'm not just Lord of the bounds of Israel, I'm Lord of the whole earth. Now what are those forces going to do? Well, I'm not going to give you a spoiler alert, you'll have to come on Good Friday and I'll tell you what they did. Let's worship and I'll be back to closing prayer. Spirit, move in power, 
Ignite my heart with your holy fire. Show me the Father. Show me the Son. Revive my soul again. Oh Spirit, come. Oh Spirit, come. Come Holy Spirit, move in power, reignite my heart with your holy fire. Show me the Father, show me the Son, revive my soul again, O Spirit, come. My hope is found in the hands of Christ, my King. So may my life be found in the hands of Christ, my King. Come home. going with this that Jesus Christ is not just Lord of Christians he's not just Lord of a patch of dirt he's Lord 
He's Lord of all. And no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what spiritual forces you think you're combating, He's greater. He's Lord. Demons had to flee when Jesus gave the word. No contest. And it's still the same today. It's still the same today. No matter what you're going through, no matter how far you think you've gone, no matter how hopeless, how desperate you think your situation is, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. As we've heard from the baptisms testimonies today, He can put Humpty Dumpty back together again. He can repair lives. He can restore lives. No matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, no matter who knows whether you've done it, no matter who you've done it with, Jesus Christ can restore your life. I'm going to close in prayer and maybe you could make this your prayer. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Take my life. Make me yours. Please, Lord, forgive me for what I've done. I want to receive your forgiveness. I want to receive your new life. Be Lord of my life. And Father, I pray as we approach this Holy Week, as we reflect on Christ moving down to Jerusalem, raising Lazarus from the dead just two kilometers outside of Jerusalem as a portent of what he was about to do with his own body. And that Lord, as we we recognize that there are cosmic forces that are working evil and wickedness in opposition to him leading up to the cross, who ultimately put him there but yet he triumphed over them because he is Lord. He is Lord. And Father, I pray for us, the church, as has been prayed several times today, that we would have the confidence, the boldness, the courage to declare Jesus Christ is Lord. I serve him, I follow him, and I'm not ashamed of it. And Lord, I pray that more and more Tasmanians through the upcoming Tasmania celebration just 47 days away, that Lord, more and more people would come to know the saving power of Jesus Christ as their Lord as well. Now, Father, I pray that we, your people, might know the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you. As we've heard tonight, nothing in the Bible is random. And more importantly, nothing Jesus did was random. He lived with purpose and there was no one better qualified to tackle the forces of darkness than he. More from Dr. Corbett next week with The Conceit of Darkness. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.